I want to welcome you here in this room at Carrollton and all of you online joining us, worshiping with us. We're so grateful that you are here. Wherever you are in life, wherever you are today in this moment, we together have one mission, one purpose, and that is to experience and share the love of Jesus. So we thank you for joining us this morning to do just that. We welcome you today in our gathering. When you think of ancient Rome, most likely you think about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. You think about the emperor or the multiple emperors that ruled across ancient Rome. Maybe you think about Augustus, who was the first official Roman emperor, who took reins after the assassination of Julius Caesar. But before there was a Roman Republic, I'm sorry, Roman Empire, there was a Roman Republic. Before Rome was an empire, it was first a republic. And Rome as a republic was governed vastly different than Rome as an empire. This republic of Rome was founded in 509 BC. And power influence was actually balanced. It was spread across two consuls elected by local assemblies. And these consuls, they presided over the Roman Senate. They determined laws. They even charged the army, the Roman military. They commanded the Roman military. People had a voice as they elected in individuals to these consuls. People had rights. They had a voice as they chose and elected officials into the Roman Republic. It was a represented democracy. Rome was a representative democracy that lasted nearly 500 years. But then, as Rome began to spread its influence across the known world, there were civil wars that began to erupt. And Rome as a republic became unstable. And as the instability in Rome grew, power began to shift. Power shifted from the people, from this represented democracy to a centralized imperial authority. One point of authority, one point of power, the Roman emperor, who held most of the power. He could determine laws. He was in complete charge of the Roman army. And no person could serve as an official of Rome without the emperor's consent. They had the Roman senate, but still it was the emperor who held most of its power. And here, people lost their voice. They lost their rights. As everything now consolidated upon the emperor and a few elites that governed with him. So Rome, across a few centuries, shifted from a republic to the empire. Now you may be thinking, well, what did the people do when this power imbalance happened? Did they rise up and revolt and ask for their voice and their rights back? And the answer is actually no, they didn't. They didn't. Over time, they fully embraced and accepted the shifting of power because the Roman government realized if they just gave people two things, they could silence their voice and appease their wants. If they kept giving people two things, they could actually erase their willpower for rights and justice. And what the Roman government kept giving people were bread and circuses. Bread and circuses. They would feed people with free bread and entertain them all day long with free entertainment, with circuses, bread and circuses. So Juvenal, a poet in first century, he said this, he said, give them bread and circuses and they will never revolt. 
they will never revolt. Just keep, peeping, keep feeding people bread and keep them entertained. And the people who are fed, entertained, they're never going to revolt. And that's exactly what they did. They became entertained and fed, and they never revolted. They didn't have rights, but they had food, free food. They didn't have a voice, but they enjoyed pleasures from Rome and entertainment that Rome provided. Bread and circuses were a superficial means of appeasement. Surface level, superficial means of appeasement. Part of the bread strategy was the grain dole. The grain dole. This was a government-funded free food program for anyone, mainly for male adults. And so over 200,000 male adults were enjoying free bread from Rome. It was initially set up as a, as a temporary emergency situation for struggling farmers. But over time, it became a permanent institution. Free bread. The grain Dole. And by the third century, the grain dole was not just free grain and free bread. It was not free bread, free olive oil, free wine, and free pork. Of course they were happy, of course. If you get all those things for free, it was the grain dole. The circuses referred to things like the circuses and the gladiators. It was the Colosseum now opening up for hundreds of days or weeks at a time to provide entertainment. So if an emperor wanted to distract people from unjust laws or abusive policies, he would open up the Colosseum and gladiators and circus entertainment would flood in. And people came by the droves, thousands, to the Colosseum. And they would spend weeks and weeks and weeks enjoying free food and free entertainment, free bread, free circus. Juvenal summarized this reality when he said this, already long ago from when we sold our vote to no man, the people have abdicated our duties for the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything, now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things, bread and circuses. He's saying, this was a group of people who were commanding the military and holding high office, who had so much more to give, who had a voice, who had rights, who had a say in the world. And now they are just anxiously waiting, hoping for more bread and more circuses. Superficial means appeasement. One that placated them from realizing the real issues of their day, the real injustices of their day that lulled them to inactiveness and indifference. Bread and circuses. I was thinking about this strategy that shifted the republic to an empire, how people lost a voice in the world. So I began to think about what are the bread and circuses of our day today? Not just the bread and circuses crafted by government, but bread and circuses that Satan himself, the enemy, crafts and employees to lull our soul to sleep, to present the church of Jesus powerless and ineffective. The things where our spiritual consciousness becomes callous and indifferent. Where once there was spiritual vigor, but bread and circuses now become superficial appeasement. Our souls 
bread and circus. We probably live in the most busy and distracted time. In fact, I think that's part of the distraction, the part of the enemy's strategy is to make us busy and distracted with unimportant things to where we perpetually live a state of busy and distracted. I think you would agree that we live in the most entertained and distracted time period in all history. Perhaps most entertained and least informed. Just in our fingertips, there are thousands, if not millions of ways to be entertained. One click of a button, one website, pleasure, entertainment, false information all across. Most entertained and least informed. And as we preoccupy our soul with unimportant things, we are lulling ourselves to sleep. We are growing numb to the realities around us. Bread and circuses, the ones of our soul. Carrie, sorry, Corey Tenboom, who was an amazing sister in the Lord who hid Jews from the Nazis to rescue them, she said it so beautifully. She said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. He can't cause you to sin, he'll make you perpetually busy and hurried. And the fascinating thing is that busyness and sin actually can do the same things to our soul. It makes us disconnected from God, disconnected from people, and even from our own soul. We are preoccupied with things that do not matter. And we feel this numbness deep inside. Writer Ronald said it like this, Ronald Rollheiser, he sort of offers the amplified version of what Corey was saying. And he said, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, death, and spirit. We would like these things. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these things show up on our radar screens. Catch this, we are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. I didn't intend on preaching this message the first week of NFL football, but it just <laughs> kind of happened. It just happened. Now, I do think God makes an exception for the Cowboys because those are eternally important things in my home, because if my wife isn't happy, then nobody's happy, and that matters a lot. Let me keep going before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Ronald goes on to say, pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Pathological busyness. It seems like that's the only soul sickness we're okay with. That we normalize, and it's almost abnormal to not be hurried and busy about unimportant things. It's pathological busyness. And in fact, there's a part of us that's attracted to busyness and attracted to distraction. And over long, as we keep living lives perpetually busy about unimportant, uneternal things, Ronald says we distract ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Our spiritual vigor is replaced with superficial appeasement. John Ordbrook said, that it's not that we're going to renounce our faith, but we will settle for a far mediocre version of faith. And we will skim over our lives instead of living in them because we are distracted by unimportant things. 
bread and circuses. So I wonder if you were to ask these questions over the next few weeks as we begin this new series called Bread and Circuses, is my soul distracted? Your soul right now, is it distracted? Is it anxious? Is it longing? Is it distracted? Is your soul marked by spiritual vigor or superficial appeasement? How is the condition of your soul? Is my soul always in a hurry? Jumping from one thing to the next, not even important things, but just always finding something to do, something to distract. Bread and circuses. I was thinking about this strategy in ancient Rome that lulled the conscience of people to sleep. Reminded me of a farewell letter that the apostle Peter wrote to, to churches in Asia Minor. In fact, Peter is living in Rome, and he writes 2 Peter towards the second half of the first century when everybody is running after bread and circuses. And Peter, he looks at the condition of the early church, the early church who we think would have gotten all right. And he sees that they have forgotten the truths of the gospel. And rather than the true gospel, destructive lies are being lodged into the soul of the church. And they're living a life disconnected from the truth of God's word, neglecting his word, living as if Jesus wasn't actually returning back to earth. So they're seeking pleasure and entertainment, seeking their sinful desires. And Peter sits down towards the end of his life and begins to write this farewell letter, 2 Peter. So the next few weeks, we're going to look at excerpts from Peter's powerful reminders that he offers that church and our church today. In fact, Peter says it like this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 15. He says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up. Hear the urgency of his language. I want to wake you up, church. With a reminder, since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me, and I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Peter says, church, what I want to do as I near my end is to wake you up. And that word, wake up, in the original language means to refresh memory. It means to stir up. It means to cause someone to think again. To think again. So here, the church in ancient Asia Minor has forgotten the truth of the gospel. They are prone to forget the gospel. They are prone to forget true doctrine and truth of God's word. And in doing so, they have abandoned spiritual zeal and effectiveness as a local church, as a global church. So Peter says, I want to refresh your memory. I want to remind you of some things. I want you to begin to spiritually think again. I want to stir up your spiritual consciousness and zeal in the world. I want to wake you up. I think it's fascinating that it's Peter writing to the church about being woken up because it's Peter who fell asleep on Jesus. <laughs> Multiple times in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, will you travail in prayer? Peter, James, and John, who falls asleep, all three of them, including Peter. Jesus tries to wake Peter up, and he stays asleep. And soon, the sleepy Peter will go on to deny Jesus three times. Peter experienced both physical drowsiness and spiritual drowsiness. 
He knows what it is to grow numb to the time that he's in. And then he has been woken up by the grace of Jesus. When he experienced the grace of Jesus, it woke him up from guilt, from regret, from shame. He awakens. And now he writes to the church for them to not do spiritually what he literally did physically. He says, stay awake, church. Stay awake. I think Peter not only gives us powerful reminders throughout the book of 2 Peter in what he explicitly says about how to wake up and staying awake. Peter, in this verse itself, the highlighted words, it wakes us up from perhaps a distraction we have already as a culture fallen into. This distraction that life on earth is all there is. That what is physical is permanent. Our physical bodies, our physical things in this world is permanent. So we live for this world. We build for this world. We long for this world. And all of our hopes are packaged into this world. But Peter's words, just in how he describes his own life, is grabbing us by the shoulders and saying, wake up. Peter says, I think it's right. As long as I'm in this bodily tent. Imagine you've never described your physical life like that. This is a bodily tent, and it's the same word that's used of the tabernacle. It is a temporary place of dwelling, a bodily tent. It's not permanent, it's temporary. We really are just pilgrims passing through. This body we love, we are to take care of, we care for, is actually temporary at best. But we live like it's permanent. Imagine the next time you go to a hotel, You begin to settle in, you unpack. I unpack all my clothes at a hotel, even if it's like a one-day stay. Hang my clothes in the closet and fold up my stuff. I just do that. I may be the only one and totally weird for it, but I do. So imagine you unpack your clothes, and then after you got done unpacking your suitcase, you begin to paint the walls. (laughs) And you take off all these family pictures, and you're hanging pictures, and you even want to do some paneling to remodel the room. Now, that's weird even for me. You'd be paying a pretty big price to the hotel. Why? Because it's a hotel. It's not your home. It's temporary. You're just passing through. It is not forever. So many of us, we treat this life as home. I'm not saying don't be disconnected. No. I'm saying we're made for a different world. And Peter says, this life, this body, whatever seems permanent is actually only temporary. It's a bodily tent. And Peter says, I will soon lay aside my tent. Peter is about 60 years of age when he writes this. And just within a few years, Nero will have him martyred. In fact, crucified upside down, as the tradition says. Peter doesn't know when that day is going to come. But he knows soon, I'm going to lay aside this temporary dwelling place. Whether you're 20 or you're 80, we can all say soon we will lay aside this tent. The 3,000 some people on 9-11 had no idea how soon they would lay aside their tent. In what circumstances, in what hour? Peter says, I'm going to soon lay aside my tent. Meaning there's a part of me that lives on, that lives on forever in my soul, my spirit Well, be home with God. Because the truth is that if you're a Christian, you actually never died. You actually never die because you have already died. You have died with Christ, and now you're risen. And John tells Martha in John 11, those who believe in me, you will never die again. 
You are risen with him. So this physical passing away that we refer to as death is simply the laying aside of this tent so that our soul lives on forever face to face with God. Peter calls it his departure. Look at the end of verse 15. I want to write you these things so that any time after my departure, you can recall these things. You know what's amazing? What I found out for the first time, the word Peter uses for the word departure is the word exodus. Exodus. My exodus. Departure. You remember the exodus, this profound, miraculous moment of the Israelites leaving Egypt, a place of oppression and bondage, and now going to their promised land. They're leaving the tyranny of Pharaoh to worship Yahweh God, unhindered from bondage to freedom, from a foreign place to their home. And the moment you placed your faith in Christ, you already went through a spiritual exodus from death to life. From the abyss of darkness to the glorious light of Jesus. And that moment where physically we lay aside this temporary dwelling place, you experience the ultimate exodus of leaving the limitations of our body, this tent, and being face to face with God once and for all unhindered. It's not the end. It is an awaited departure. For some of you who have had loved ones, Depart, children pass away, spouses, siblings, friends. They simply reach their exodus before you. In fact, the word for departure is only other time used by Jesus. Well, Luke, where Luke says in Luke 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah are hanging out with Jesus on the mountaintop, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure. Of Jesus' own exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Even the death on a cross was an exodus back to the Father. So I think the first thing that Peter, by his own testimony of how he views his life, his body, his time, is to wake us up from the bread and circuses that convince us that this is the world we live for. This is permanent. And Peter is saying, time is brief. Time is brief. There is a shortness to our life. In fact, I think we confuse time and the brevity of life because we view time as a clock. This kind of a clock that just keeps going and on and on. So the shorthand or the longhand gets to 12, and guess what? It just ticks again. Another minute, another hour, another day just goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop. It just keeps going on and on. And somehow this kind of time-telling convinces us that this is the days of our life, the years of our life. It just goes on and on. So why mind if we waste a few years or a few days or a few decades? We'll always get more. There'll always be another day. There'll always be another chance, another year. It's a misrepresentation of time here on earth. Now, eternity will be like that. But our life on earth is not that. Our life on earth is not really like a clock. It's more like an hourglass. An hourglass. They both measure time, but an hourglass more accurately measures the time of our life. You're allotted a certain number of days. And so as the sand seeps through, as days go by, 
it builds a sense of urgency to realize the brevity of life, the shortness of life, because we don't get those moments back. We don't get those conversations back. We don't get those years back. So it creates a longing. God, I don't want to live a wasteful life. I don't want to live a distracted life that distracts myself into spiritual oblivion. I want my life to matter. I want my days to count. I want to live wisely as we number our days. Steve Frizzell said it so well. He said, when we see that time is limited, we will limit what we do with our time. When we see time as limited, we will limit what we do with our time because we now have a whole new perspective. Now, I know you're thinking, I came to church and I'm depressed more than I was before. <laughs> I'm told that my time is running out, wasting my life away. No, no, no. Here's what I want to encourage you and what Peter says. He says, realize the brevity of life. Realize that it's short, but also know that everything you need for this life has already been given to you. Like, don't spend the years, the decades, the days trying to get more, trying to become more qualified. No, no, no. Everything you need for this short life has already been freely deposited and given to you. That's actually how Peter begins 2 Peter. When he says in 2 Peter, this is chapter 1, not 2, typo. 2 Peter 1, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received, already received, a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter goes on in verse 3 and says, His divine power has given what? Us everything. Can you say that with me? Everything? His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world. Escaping the bread and circuses that are in the world. Because of evil desire. Peter looks at Christians and says, you've got everything you need, Christian. Don't pursue more. Don't try to pursue some other theory out there or some other truth out there. You, as a Christ follower, you are already the full package. You've got everything you need for life and godliness through the power of the Spirit. And Peter says, here's four categories. Here are four things you already possess as a Christian. You have all the faith you need. You have grace and peace multiplied in you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. And not only that, you have the very nature of God. His divine nature is inside of you. That's better than bread and circuses. To have that kind of faith, grace, and peace multiplied, compounding, to have God's nature in us. Everything you need for this life and the one to come and everything you long for, for godliness, already in you. How do we have those things? Well, Peter makes sure to say that all of these things come through a relationship with Jesus. That's the only way. It is through the knowledge of him, 
through Jesus and his righteousness, through faith in God, in our knowledge of Jesus, we have already all of these things. It is not an intellectual knowledge merely. It is a heart knowledge. It is a relationship with Jesus. It is to know Christ, to walk with him in the intimacy, in a relationship. And when we walk with Jesus, all of these things are compounding and multiplying deep with inside of us. So the cure to a distracted world is not just to now go and reorder your calendar. That might happen at some point. But the cure to the world's distraction is to put your eyes or your attention, your affection fully on Jesus. We become less distracted in this world as we become more focused on Jesus. Four times, Paul says, through our relationship with Jesus, through your knowledge of Jesus, through the righteousness that, gives, that is given to us by Jesus, you have all of these things. The cure to distraction is focusing on the one and only one that matters. As you set your heart, your mind, your affection fully possessed by Jesus, you have far more than you can ever imagine. He says, I love this. Here's the kind of faith you have, believer. Peter says, you have a faith that's equal to ours. You paying attention to that word? equal to ours. Who is the ours? The ours is the apostles. Peter, James, and John, all the other remarkable apostles who turned the world upside down. Peter says the moment you place your trust in Jesus, the moment you rely on his righteousness, you have equal faith. Because this faith is not achieved. This faith is received. You receive the same level of faith that the apostles had. Because his faith is in a person, Jesus, and he is all you need. So the moment you place your faith, your trust in Jesus, he gives you actually all the faith you ever need. A faith equal to the apostles. You may think, well, my faith is weak or my faith is wavering. Actually, you have already been given the same faith as the apostles. You've got everything you need in your relationship with Jesus. All the faith has already been given. Now it's up to you whether you realize it or not. Whether you activate that faith or not, but it's already inside of you through the Spirit of God that is at work in you. A faith equal to the apostles. So don't let the enemy convince you you don't have enough faith. You've already got it inside of you. Sometimes we think the faith of the apostles were so perfect, but I think they had spotty faith. <laughs> I think they had weak moments. I imagine some days they woke up saying, another prison God, really? Okay, we go. we're, we're going to do this. Because all it takes is a little bit of faith. A faith as small as a mustard seed, and you can move mountains. Because ultimately, it's not the level of your faith or the size of your faith. It's the level of your God and the size of Jesus. And he is powerful. He never changes. He is faithful. So if you got just trust in him, that's all you need. Now, I think it's fascinating that this faith that Peter had, opened up prison doors as he was praying and worshiping in the midnight hour. Doors of the prison were opened and disciples of Jesus experienced miraculous moments and occurrences, breakthroughs completely inexplainable by human words. And in just a moment, we're gonna invite you for healing prayer because we believe God still heals. He still delivers, he still intersects our story, our timeline with the supernatural. 
We want the heavens to be open, God saying we believe for prison doors and breakthroughs to happen again. But at the same time, Peter's faith led him to a cross. Actually, most of the disciples, they would pay a price. Peter would hang upside down on a cross. Because the same faith that produces miracles is the same faith that causes you to endure, causes you to be patient. And you experience the miracle of grace. Maybe not the removal of weakness, but grace and peace be multiplying. Faith is needed to go through the cross and faith is needed for resurrection power. And sometimes faith leads us to miraculous breakthroughs and moments. And the equal faith leads us to endure with perseverance and love and trust even when you don't see a way out. It's equal faith. Peter says you've been given the equal faith that all of us the apostles have. And with that comes everything you need for life and godliness. With that comes the multiplication of grace and peace even when you don't understand. His divine power gives you what you need because His holiness produces holiness in you. His purity produces purity in you. His love produces radical love inside of you. And Peter says, don't be fooled to thinking that you are limited by your human nature because you're not. Because the moment you became a Christ follower, you are a brand new creation. And now through these divine precious promises, you participate in the divine nature of God. You are not limited by your nature. You are not limited by your wound, by your past. No, no, no. You participate in the very nature of God. So his nature of wholeness is extended to you, birthed inside of you by the power of the Spirit. His nature of radical love and forgiveness is inside of you. And you can endure. You can persevere because Jesus endures and he perseveres. The power of the Spirit transforms you and you are sharers with God of his own nature. You are not obligated to your addiction. You are not obligated to the flesh because you share. In this short while we have on earth, he gives you everything you need and his nature becomes inseparable from who you are. Just stand on your feet today. Brad and Circus says, I wonder if your soul has been distracted for a long time. Where the bread and circuses of your mind are that have convinced you that this life is all there is. I get to keep trying again and again, so I'll give it a few more years before I get things right with the Lord. Soon we will lay aside this bodily tent. I want to remind you of the brevity of life. But in and through that revelation, Peter says, you Christian, you've got everything you need. You've got all the faith, all the peace, all the grace, the divine nature, his power is fully deposited in you because you don't just achieve them, you have freely received them. Maybe you're here today and you're without a relationship with Jesus. Today is a day of your salvation. Today is a day of your exodus from your past sins, from your guilt and shame. Today is a day of freedom for you because Jesus is here to set you free. He has been patiently waiting for you. And he's saying, can I heal the soul sickness of your heart? 
Can I make you new? Can I make you whole by the power of the Spirit? Today I'm inviting you to Christ. We don't have anything shiny, anything entertaining to offer you. All we have is Jesus to give you. And He is enough. At this time, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to, to take their positions along the front and transverse aisles. And I'm going to invite today those of you who feel a wound, who feel sickness. Maybe it's in your body. You feel a physical ailment and it's painful. And you're desperate for healing. We want to join our faith. We all have equal faith. Wherever you are, we want to join them together and ask the heavens to be open and say, God, will you bring healing? Will you pour out the gifts of healing? In our last worship night, one of our sisters said, I came into that healing prayer with cancer and I went to the doctor the next day and there was no cancer. <laughs> That's amazing. We can praise God for that. God does it. He chooses how he does it, but he does it. So if you need healing today, we want to invite you. But maybe you came with a deep emotional wound and it's been heavy. You can't fall asleep at night. You just keep rehearsing the betrayal, the wound, the hurt. Your soul is heavy. Today, Jesus is the lifter of burdens. He wants to remove that garment of sorrow and give you a garment of praise. Would you come and be prayed for? Maybe it's emotional anxiety or depression. I don't know what it is for you, but we want to join our faith with yours and say, God, will you bring strength? Maybe it is supernatural healing, or maybe it's the multiplication of grace and peace where nothing changes around you, but everything changes in you because the Spirit is at work. We want to pray for divine healing, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is. So we're going to sing. I'm going to ask you to come forward, join the hands of one of our partners in ministry here, and let's pray together. Would you pray? Father, now we just open up this environment. Maybe it is to draw a circle around the chair that somebody's at and say, God, will you meet me here? May this be the altar. Maybe for some, God, healing looks like getting focused again and repenting of the bread and circuses of our life, the distractions that have kept grace at bay from us and this divine nature distant from us. Today, we want to put our focus and our attention on you. And we invite you, Lord Jesus, to do what only you can do. Heal the deepest part of our soul. Heal our bodies. Heal our minds. Heal our emotions. May we experience the wholeness, the shalom of God in this room as your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be so today, God. Even online, God, thank you, Father, that your spirit, it transcends spaces and venues, and you are touching hearts. You are moving all across the stream today, and you are making yourself known. You are convincing us that you are enough. You are all we need. So as we continue to sing and worship church family, if you need prayer, would you step out now and join the hands of one of our prayer ministers? Let's join our faith together and go to God for healing.